Hello and welcome back to the South London Press Football Pod. I'm Edwin Brack and I'm once again joined by the South London Press's sports editor, Richard Corley. Rich, how are you doing? I'm very good, Edmund, very good. It's a late one this time, a late pod we're recording <laughs> because of a certain special guest. <laughs> Indeed, after, after hours, after dark. Um, and we're also joined by a special guest today, as Rich mentioned, someone who writes a regular column for the paper and covers every Crystal Palace away game. It's Mr Adam Sells. Selsey, welcome. How are you? Good evening. I'm very well, thank you. And remember, Rich, good things come to those who wait, as they say. <laughs> Absolutely. So I've, I've kept you till... 20 to 11, so that you can uh, have plenty to think about before we talk Crystal Palace. Yeah, your nickname now is Adam Solero Sells because you've just <laughs> had a Solero as we're about to start this, which I, I love. I, I think I wish I had a Solero I could eat, but I haven't got one. Anyway, enough about I'll send, that. I'll send a box for you to keep in the freezer. All right? <laughs> Lovely. Never, but never, never be out of stock. Make sure you've always got half a dozen in there. Perfect. Uh, I had some fish cakes and chips on the on the train home about eight o'clock tonight from Manchester. So there you go. It's the perfect, uh, perfect, uh, perfect settler afterwards. Anyway, absolutely. First of all, before we get into the main thrust of the podcast, I just wanted to say a massive thank you to all the nice messages and support that we had on the first episode. Uh, it's greatly appreciated. Yeah, uh, Something else we need to touch on is the intro music because yeah. I know Selzy wasn't a big fan of it, Rich. It, it got a few, it got a few comments, and and what I've said is that I like to sort of see South London as the Wild West, South London sport, and I see myself and Ed as the kind of sheriffs that uh, you know make sure that orders kept. So <laughs> yeah, that's that. That was the reason for the music. So I suppose tonight it's the good, the bad and the ugly. Ed's definitely the good and you and me are going to have to have a word about the other two, Selzy. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. You're in rampant yeah. form tonight. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. It's after the watershed, that's why. Yeah, um, that's right. First of all, the sort of the main story still circulating our four clubs this week is, is still Millwall and their search for a new boss at the Den. Rich, you obviously did a story at the start of the week which detailed that it's perhaps going to be a bit more of a, a thorough process uh, this time around, well, as usual, in, in their search for a new manager to replace Gary Rowett. Yeah, I think, you know, in terms of the actual wait for the new man to be announced, it's going to be probably, I would think, back end of next week at the earliest. Um, you know, there is going to be more than one stage to the interview process, as there was when Gary Rowett was appointed. So, it's a question of whether that becomes a, a two-stage process or if there's enough candidates and they need to slim it down again, a three-stage one. So that's where we were at. Um, obviously, we're in the kind of silly season with it. There were people speculating that Neil Warnock was at... Um, was uh, well, Frank Lampard actually was supposed to be in the director's box at the Den on Tuesday night. He, he wasn't in the director's box at the Den. Uh, there's been various stuff about Neil Warnock as well, uh, again, which I don't necessarily think is, is is particularly close to the bone or have any kind of credence to it. So we're kind of in that situation where at the moment, Adam Barrett, you know, is going to be in charge for the game on Saturday. And, um, you know, we're going to have to wait and see who obviously gets it. I mean, the, the one thing I would say is it's very difficult to throw names out there. There are some ones that we spoke on about the last pod, such as Kevin Muscat. Uh, John Eustace, I said at the time that they were people that Millwall would definitely be speaking to. I think until we get into that second week, we're not going to really, you know, that's when you begin to see some people fall by the wayside. And I think we'll have a clearer picture where they're going with things. Uh, is it possible to say how many rounds or, or 
interviews stages you think there might be this time around with with what I, I think you mentioned something about James Berylson in the piece somewhere. Yeah, I mean James James Berylson uh, came over um, with his mother, um, and he was in the director's box. The big screen showed them before the game. Um, that was that was planned before. I think people thought that um, when uh, that was announced by I think it was on the Sky commentary from the game on Saturday, people were thinking, "Oh, this means there's something imminent." But there really isn't. It was pre-planned. Um, you know, they were already coming over, uh, James, James and his mother. And um, so, yeah, I don't think he, he will be involved in the process. But I think the idea that he would sit on on every single um, part of that process when it's in its embryonic stages, I just it's, it's just not the way it's going to work. In terms of how many stages, I think it depends how many candidates potentially get through to that second round. If there's still quite a few they're going to need to thin the pack again. So um, obviously, I guess it seems fairly obvious that if the results were to take a real bad turn, I guess that would potentially um, expedite the process a bit. But at the time, um, the indications I'd had were that Millwall had faith in the current caretaker team and in the players to, to kind of carry on performing. Although, obviously, after a fairly decent point up at Preston, uh, Tuesday didn't exactly... Uh, go totally to plan or to plan. So, um, yeah, I think that's the way it's going to break down and we'll have to see um, where it where, where it goes from there. Selzy, from a neutral's point of view, someone who obviously works a lot in football, knows a lot about the industry and the game, how do you assess Millwall's situation at the moment with Gary Rowett departing and maybe what they're looking to do next? I think it's actually not come at a terrible time in terms of the candidates that are out there. I think, you know, looking from the outside, I think there's quite a few that look like a good fit for Millwall, to be honest. I mean, Rich just alluded to John Eustace there as being somebody that they'd like to talk to. And Michael Beale would look a good fit as well with a South London background and what he'd achieved at uh, QPR and stuff. I think um, he could also be a, a good fit there. There are a few good ones there at the moment. I think that that could take Millwall on and, and you know, they need to find the right guy who can work within the parameters at the club. But, you know, and I say parameters because, you know, in, in, in the last few years, you know, um, the Berylson family have, have really backed managers and, and the club and brought in some decent players. So, you know, I, I think they're, you know, they've been unlucky not to, not to sort of squeeze into the playoffs last year. And, and you know, the season's a long one in the Champions, so many games. And as soon as somebody puts a run together, you can you can appear in the in the top six. And I, I think Millwall are better to take a week or two, as Richard said, to get the, the appointment right. But there certainly looks, on paper at least, some really good candidates. And I think they're going to do all right from it. Um, Rich, you were obviously at the game on Tuesday night at the Den. You watched the game against Preston as well, um, or live, watched it on TV. In terms of what Adam Barrett might have changed in, in his short stint at caretaker manager, have you noticed anything at all different about the squad or has it been too much of a hectic turnaround to, to really notice a real change in management style? Well, he's had a few injuries to contend with, uh, which obviously Gary Gary had as well. You've got people like Kevin Nisbet, who, who's been unavailable. You've got Sean Hutchinson, who when he's fit is is a really, really good championship defender. And Ryan Leonard, who at the, in the summer when Ryan Leonard renewed his deal or Millwall renewed his deal, there was quite a lot of, I don't know, 
negativity towards it. But the one thing with Ryan Leonard, I think, is when he's fit and available, he's a very key component of the team. So he's had players that have not been available to him, Adam Barrett, as Gary Rowett didn't have them either. Um, he did change the shape of the week uh, in, on Tuesday. He went to a back four, um, played a 4 2 3 1. Um, I, I'd say that there hasn't been a massive change, but then maybe some of the personnel means it, it's not that easy for him to change it that much. The big problem Millwall have got, I think, is um, at times, is if you look at some of the stats, I think they're 20th in the division for XG, uh, 17th for shots on target, 21st for big chances sort of created. So the goals aren't flowing mega easily for them and some of the chances. And I, I did a bit with Zian Fleming last week when I went down the training ground. If you look last season, Zian, when he came in, his shot count was up there from the get-go. You know, he was right up there for shots. Um, before the last couple of games, he was down to something like 60, 62nd or 63rd for player shots in the division. Um, and so they need to kind of get someone like Zian fully firing. I mean, he scored a terrific goal at the weekend, um, but it's definitely a problem for them. And one of the other things I think they've struggled with this season is teams that are possession-based. Blackburn played out from the back. They were happy to take risks uh, and, and kind of put the ball at risk. But they also um, were able to beat Millwall's press or attempts to close them down. And we've seen that with Leeds. We've seen that with Swansea. It's been a problem for them. So, um, and, you know, Blackburn played some intricate stuff, um, you know, and they obviously worked it through for the, for the, for, for the first goal down the right-hand side. I was going to ask, um, obviously, Selzy, you know, your background is completely in the sort of goalkeeping side. You obviously were, for people who don't know you, were, uh, before you, your, your job you do now, you were obviously at the academy in the goalkeeping, a goalkeeping coach at the academy at Palace. What did you make of the first couple of goals last night? Because I wonder with Bart whether maybe there is, you know, the, the, the shot from Rankin Costello, whether it, he sees it slightly late because it comes through Hardin's legs. It might take a slight touch. But what did you make of the first two? Because obviously the first goal is a gift, isn't it, for Millwall? Yeah, it looked to me, I've only seen them quickly. I haven't had a chance to properly study them. But the first one, it looked like Wallstead, the keeper, who's only just in his first few games at, uh, at Blackburn. He came in because Ainsley Pears got injured and they sold uh, Thomas Kaminsky during the summer to Luton. Pears was um, really favoured over Kaminsky towards the end of last season by John Dale Thomason, but that surprised me a little bit, I have to say, because Kaminsky's shown up well as a championship goalkeeper before he was moved on. Wolves did it look to me, I hadn't seen too much of him so far, but he seemed to have done okay in the early games. It looked to me last night, perhaps he was trying to make a and as I said, I haven't had the, the chance to sort of study it closely, but almost like too clean a technical pickup from something that was quite from quite close range, and it might have been better to go with his foot or something like more instinctive to to get the ball away in in that situation. And and the part one again, if it's taken a deflection, I think like you can't really blame him too much. Obviously, if it if it's gone straight through. I think he was unsighted as well. And Bart's got a very big frame, as, as everybody knows. So I think it's that makes it difficult for those ones that are often just in that sort of hole under the 
under the body, if you like, and, and to get your body down there that quickly when you're a big guy can be difficult. And again, that might have been one that, um, you know, to make a comparison, somebody like Nick Pope will be obviously that uh, people in South London that listen, especially from the, the Charlton side, will be familiar with this real specialist in those foot saves in those ones that are close to his body and he has to be again because he has a similar frame to Bart so it's really difficult to get down that quickly when they're that close to your body so I think it's been a little you know it's a little bit unfortunate that's for sure and it's certainly you know again very easy to be critical from a from a distance but when you're there and how quick it comes at you and what you see and and if there is a deflection, then that makes it, you know, very, very tough. I think um, a couple of other things I'd say about from the Millwall game, Casper Denor, every time I see him, I, I like the look of him. I think his, his range of passing, his quality on the ball, you can just see his class in the, in the middle for, for Millwall. So looks a, looks a really good signing. But a little bit of conspiracy theory about Alan Campbell playing instead of George Savile. Alan Campbell didn't start the other night. Um, there was, I've seen suggestions that maybe there is some kind of, uh, guarantee from Luton that uh, Alan Campbell has to play. I've got to say that having dealt with this kind of stuff before, when players come in from Premier League clubs, quite often a Premier League club might have uh, something in there that you pay more um, towards the player's salary if they're, you know, if they're not starting. But I mean, Millwall have had that with players in the past and not selected them. So I don't necessarily think that's indicative of anything. So just thought I'd, I'd clear that up as well, as, as far as I'm aware anyway. Mm. One thing I'd say, Rich, on that is that I think that's become less of a thing more recently because it was sort of deemed to take the sort of sporting integrity away if you are forced to pay a player player in, in, in order to not pay the player or pay the player as much. So I don't know whether that would have existed in that deal um, at Millwall, but that's not as common as it was previously for those reasons, as I understand it. Okay. Um, a question for you, actually. Adam Wharton came on for uh, Blackburn with about 13 minutes to go last night, and he's been heavily scouted by Dougie Friedman over a period of time. Did he show up well, Rich, in the game? I didn't really notice him, is the honest thing. I, I do, I think he had different, I don't know what boots they are, but different coloured boots. He had like a, a a sort of orange one and a sort of more luminous kind of, you know, like he was going to cycle home and he didn't want to get hit by a car. Um, so <laughs> um, I think he, I think he did have a couple of touches, but he wasn't someone that I particularly noticed. A couple of players I did like the look of, I really like the look of, uh, I don't know if you pronounce it. I've got to worry about pronunciations now. And if you have to worry about that as a journalist, um, writing normally. Uh, Sammy, come on, Ed, help me out. Smoddix. Oh, Smoddix, yeah. Yeah, really like the look of him. I think he's, if Millwall could get a player like that, happy days. Uh, and I thought Callum Britton, who scored a terrific second goal for them, was was very bright at fullback. So in terms of players that caught my eye from their side, and, and ranking Costello caused them a lot of problems as well. Although he... I think he made way, it might well have been actually, I haven't got the notes in front of me, but it might have actually been for Wharton. Um, so, yeah, I can't can't tell you any more on him other than that. I wish I'd known beforehand, I would have scouted him probably. Well, he's attracted a lot of interest from a lot of clubs, but he's not been playing so much recently. But uh, I was intrigued to hear if he'd sort of done anything spectacular last night, apart from his boots. 
Yeah, well, no, that's nothing. not a bad idea. If you want to be scouted, Rich, wear some <laughs> very, very wet Larry boots or get a really stupid haircut. One of those well, two well, things normally makes you stand out, even if you, even if your playing ability doesn't. Yeah, the thing was their kit was so high vis. I half expected when I go home from Millwall or Charlton, I often get stuck on the trying to get off the A2 or A20 onto the M25. Quite often it's shut, and I'd half expected them to be there working. To be fair, because <laughs> that was the kind of colour kits they had on. So um, yeah, they weren't there. I managed to get home fine. There was no closure. So happy days. Uh, uh, Barrett is obviously in charge for this Saturday against Watford at Watford. Um, expecting things to sort of maybe move slightly on the managerial front after then. I think that's what fans would probably want yeah. to know. If that's this could be maybe one of his last games in charge, or, or if not, the it depends how. How long the interview process goes on for Rich? Yeah, I think I think we're probably after that. Uh, I think Millwall probably will be looking to kind of. Um, step, I'm not saying they're not stepping things up now, but I think in terms of actually having, if I was a gambling man, I would think perhaps they'll have someone in place. Probably, maybe might not take charge the following weekend of that game, which off the top of my head I think is home to Southampton. Um, but I think by then, I think there, there probably will be some clarity. Although. I say that you can never tell. It's a bit like transfers. You think things are going to happen and then there's something that kind of little kinks that stop it. But I think that's the way that it will probably go. Uh, just finally, before we end our sort of our, our part on Mill, I think Mill fans might be interested, Selzy, to know what you think of the, the Sarkic signing over the summer. You know, the, there was seemed to be a lot of talk for quite a while around Sarkic and it was sort of on and off. And Mark Travers was also heavily linked on and off with the with the switch to Millwall and it seemed that one of them would go to Stoke and one of them would end up at Millwall and that's how it panned out. I mean, he's obviously had quite a bad injury quite quickly and he, I think he probably had a fairly mixed start to um, to his Millwall career. There were a few good moments and one or two, I think there was a goal that he lost at Norwich off the top of my head, I'm thinking, where he came and, and didn't make a cross. But... Um, He's young and it, it, it could be quite a decent signing long-term for Millwall because of the money they've spent. If he can develop and and um, get more games under his belt, then I always think with the goalkeeper that, that the magic number is 200 games. You know, once you've played 200 games as a goalkeeper, you are a, a proper goalkeeper. And if you can do that by the time you're 28 you're probably going to have 10 years of a really good career um, earning money if you've got those games under your belt. And the sooner that you can do it, the better in that respect. And I think you'll be on course to, um, you know, play over the next couple of few seasons, you know, regular football at Millwall when he recovers. And that may well see his... Uh, his, his stock rise in that respect. It's all it's all about experience, really. And he's had a bit of experience, Matthias Sarkic, now. And um, he'll be keen to, to get back and, and continue that and see if he can um, push himself along. Uh, we're going to bring the Millwall part of the, the pod to a close there, but join us in part two when we, uh, we start talking about Crystal Palace. Welcome back to part two of the South London Press Football Pods. So, Selzy... Crystal Palace. We were we were both at Newcastle on Saturday. Firstly, have you recovered from the game yet? And and what are your thoughts a couple of days after being able to digest what happened at St James's Park? Well, it was a pretty terrible weekend all round, to be honest. First of all, 
I ended up stranded, as you know, in Doncaster on Friday night when I was trying to get back south and having to take emergency measures and hotels and uh, uh, laundry and whatever else to make sure I was able to turn it all around for uh, for Saturday and didn't bother coming back south in the end. But, um, yeah, the journey was eventful um, and uh, the game was, I mean, it was quite un-Crystal Palace-like under Roy Hodgson. There haven't been too many days. You, you get a couple of those in the season sometimes, but you know, Palace are very, very short, as we know, and it was going to be a very difficult game, you know, regardless. But such are the sort of lack of attacking options and uh, game-changing players, really, in the in the group that are available and, and, and due to the sort of lack of squad building during the summer and, and, and actually, you know, taking aside abilities and and ages and experience and all that to one side for a second, you know, there is actually just a an actual sort of lack of numbers really in the group in the first place. So Roy went with experience and decided to, to use Mateta as centrally and, and Ayu on the right and and um Odson Edward who'd scored four in seven or whatever it was previously on the left and it really you know, the, the front line were very pedestrian, one-paced. There was no trickery, no, um, no, no no sort of real threat was posed to to the uh, to the Newcastle back line. And, and it, it, you know, it sort of um, meant that on top of that, your mainstays that have been really very consistent for Palace over recent times, Mark Gehi, Joachim Anderson, Jefferson Lerma has done well in the games he's played prior to injury. Czech Dekuri was the player of the season last year mm-hmm. and I would say all four of them had their worst game in a Crystal Palace shirt that I can remember in some time. So, unfortunately, your forward line's not providing very much in terms of a threat and that sort of rock solid unit centrally that you've become quite dependent on wasn't there either on Saturday and you know perhaps it would have been different as Roy said afterwards in the in the presser you know that had Palace been able to hold out and go in only one nil down at half time then then I mean certainly the the three nil lead that that Newcastle took into the break wasn't uh unjust in any way and they might have scored five or six in the first period but obviously with a few minutes to go and it being one nil you know perhaps there was you know some chance that something could be pulled round and and scrape a result out of the game but those two quick goals just before half time absolutely killed it stone dead and the second half was a bit of a procession really and you know mm. very very un Crystal Palace-like under Roy Hodgson. I've seen a fair amount of criticism, I think, after the game from from fans talking about the fact that maybe Jordan Ayew wasn't moved over to the left sooner to to help out Tyreek Mitchell. Is that something that you thought about in the days since the game or was that something you agree with or not? Because during the game, it looked like they were getting down that flank quite easily. But at the same time, if you switch it, then you lose all the balance to the team and Hodgson can't play on the right. So there's a lot of variables that you need to take into consideration. 
Yeah, I'd I'd heard it too. I must say they the the long staff uh Trippier Murphy combination they created quite a few overloads in that situation and uh, and and Odds and Edward didn't protect Tyrick Mitchell too much and help him out something he'd been used to with Jeffrey Schlupp playing there previously in front of him who attracts quite a lot of criticism from from a good number of the fans but you'd have to say he was actually missed in in that respect on on Saturday um but again I think perhaps Roy may have thought about that but he was almost at half time and he may have thought well we'll get everyone in and have a look at it but um two quick goals sort of killed it stone dead and mm. I mean it's, it's I, I'm I don't think I can be too critical of Roy in the fact that you know he's done so well I think that's only his fifth defeat since he's come back in something like 19 or 20 games and you know we certainly haven't had in this that was clearly the worst game of his recent uh, tenure, so I, I think I think you can't be you can't be overcritical because I I really think it's more down to personnel and lack of personnel and lack of numbers and quality and experience in the forward areas. We can cope really with with the the central midfield area and, and defensively, and obviously we have a lot of depth in the goalkeeping department and strength there now. Um, but the forward areas, we still look very, very, very light. And the options are, you know, are, are very thin. And that that sort of, I, I felt when the window closed, Palace were three forward players light in their squad, a striker and two wide players. And I think that even if you didn't get the striker, but brought in the two wide players, and they could have been loans, they could have been freeze, you know, Rich will will know about Adama Traore for his own um, his own club, you know, and that would have been the type of signing I would have thought would have helped Palace. I mean, ironically, he's injured as well currently. Yeah. I think, but, yeah, he's been injured for but a while. that was that was the type of signing that I thought could help Palace, or even a, mm. a Dan Juma or Sinistera on loan, or Jack Harrison type, you know, one or two of those to to add to the to the, the talent that we had already might have actually seen us push on a little bit. As it is, we're very short and going into games, struggling to create chances and score goals. I think that's half the games that they haven't scored in and three in the last four that they haven't scored in. I think the only goal in that was the Joachim Anderson blockbuster at uh, Old Trafford. So, you know, I, I think to me, the frustration is that was clearly obvious before a ball was kicked this season that they were very short, losing Wilfred as well in the summer and not addressing it and not bringing the numbers in has then been compounded with the injuries to key personnel again, Eze in particular. But I mean, even with Franca and Elise, they were aware before a ball was kicked, that they would be out for a considerable amount of time, which, you know, that really surprised me that even from the first day when we were together at Bramall Lane at Sheffield United, that 
Palace were really short then and they ended up winning the game mm. by a goal that really probably should have won by three or four. So I think that's where the, the problem lies. So it's really difficult because you can't blame Roy. He's gone for his sort of tried and tested situation at Newcastle on Saturday. But really, you're playing three centre-forwards across the front line. The squad needs at least six ball carriers, dribblers, people that can go past people. The more players you have that can do something individual, the more chance you have of winning football matches. And quite honestly, Palace with France, hopefully, uh, Ezra and Elise, the outside of that, and young Raksaki, there aren't enough. And they, they need at least a couple more of that type that can carry the ball and go past people and make things happen and create mm. to, to really give themselves the proper strength and depth required for a Premier League campaign. In terms of the silver lining from the day, and maybe Roy didn't perhaps see it like this in the post-match press conference. Not from your question, anyway, Bacchus. (laughs) Which I didn't take any offence to to anyone that was wondering. It was a very fair comment that he said to me afterwards. But um, perhaps maybe the small silver lining from the day was the fact that Mateus Rancher got on for his first Crystal Palace appearance and Jezrin Raksaki looked good as well when he came on. And you actually said in your takeaways after the game that you wanted to see both start Friday night's clash against Premier League leaders Tottenham Hotspur. Is that something you're still advocating on? Is that something that you think might happen? Well, whether it will happen or not, I don't know. But I have to say, if I'm Roy right now, I couldn't go into the game and play those same three forward players that that were used at, uh, at Newcastle. I would probably use Jordan Ayew as my centre-forward on on uh, Friday night with Odson Edouard behind and Jez and uh, and uh, France either side. Now, that, that's, you know, very risky in terms of experience and stuff. But on the other side of it, I think it's probably very risky also to go with three players that, that aren't going to make an impact and, and play together as well. So, I'd... I, I, I don't think Roy has much choice. And if it doesn't work, I think he's perfectly entitled to shrug his shoulders and say, well, I've gone with what we've got. I've tried the experience route and that didn't work. So now I'm going to go about it and, and try and get a better balance to the team, which I think is the most important thing. I, don't, I think it, when, when, you're, when you're picking a football team, it's about balance on the field. It doesn't always relate to having the best personnel, but if you've got two wide players that can go past people and make things happen, you know, mm. a hard hard working centre forward and perhaps somebody who can score a goal in odds and Edward behind, then that might um, give us a fighting chance against unbeaten Tottenham. I and mean, it's a tall order, but you do feel that if you go into games with Michael Elise and Eberechi Eze, you, you do feel that you're capable of giving anybody a game, whether it be Manchester City or, or Luton Town, you know, in that respect. But, you know, we, we've we been so short and so lacking in sort of quality cover and competition that the, the bit that worries me, Ed, really, I guess, thereafter, is I can see that sort of eight or nine of the players are, are going to be sort of automatic choices really because of the 
the lack of competition and depth in the squad. And I don't think that's necessarily healthy. Hmm. I've got one for you, Selzy. Do you do you expect? I mean, Ed as well could answer it both of you. Really, do you think the depth in the squad will get addressed in the January window? The the issues, the the areas where you are light. Do you think that the January window will Palace will spend particularly to 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 sort that out? Well, I guess that depends on the on the angle from from the boardroom. Really, you know, and and you understand. You have to understand, I guess their perspective or you know, I'll say their perspective you know, I don't know exactly what Steve Parrish and co are thinking, you know I'll, I'll, I'll say to you that Steve Parrish has been the best chairman that Crystal Palace have had and it's been proven time after time and he, he gets much more right than he gets wrong but on the other side of it the, the difficulty for, for Crystal Palace for instance may be that and it's probably the same for Fulham, your team as well, Rich. You know, that you you get two and a half million or whatever it is per place that you finish higher. If you finish, where were Palace last year, Ed? 12th or, or 14th or something? Where did they finish? I think we finished 12th. 12th, right. Okay. Yeah. So, in order to finish three places higher and get, an extra seven and a half million. The problem is how much does that actually cost the club in terms of transfer fees and wages to to make that happen? So you can understand the fact that they don't necessarily want to to spend, you know, fifty million gaining an extra seven and a half million in terms of uh, you know place money, if you like, in 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 the overall scheme of things, but. On the other side of that, you know, if you want to be ambitious and you want to move forward, I think that's what you're going to need to do. So, you know, obviously the the, the situation in the boardroom with John Texter and David Blitzer and Josh Harris, you know, John Texter has his interests in lots of clubs and and Josh Harris and, and, and David Blitzer, as we know, were interested in acquiring you know, a big share or stake in Chelsea at, at one point, it sort of makes you wonder perhaps where it's all going or, or what's going to happen. But I think perhaps until that that um, situation changes and perhaps there is somebody who is, I mean, there's no doubt, you know, and, and again, I, I find it quite disappointing and frustrating given how well he's done, Steve, that people sort of have this idea that he doesn't want the best for the football club. He doesn't wake up any morning thinking, what can I do to damage the fortunes of Crystal Palace? But Steve obviously needs the help of these wealthy guys around him to to make things happen. And, you know, I, I understand from a fan's perspective that they see uh, Josh Harris buying the Washington Commanders the most expensive sports franchise in history whilst they want to see some some growth and investment in Crystal Palace but you know I, I do I do feel the potential of the club is is still pretty much untapped really in that sense and that if they could bring success and a and a stadium of, of, of the, that's you know suitable to a team that that's 
in the upper echelons of the Premier League, then you know the club could still really move forward. Uh, slight correction: we finished eleventh, not twelfth. But uh, yeah, yeah, I, 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 I knew it was there or thereabouts. Seven, seven points behind a certain West London team, but that yeah. won't probably be the case this time. Man, you've got to enjoy <laughs> the good times. You've got to enjoy the good times as a Fulham fan, and that was a good season. But I'm not saying we're going to be finishing above Palace this season. That's that's for sure. So well, yeah. After Monday night, I think you might uh, feel slightly deflated, Rich. Yeah. Uh, Bassi was was Tottenham's best player, I think. (laughs) They were singing Goldfinger and Hey Big Spender in the showers afterwards at White Hart Lane, weren't they? Well, that's apparently so. I do think watching the game as I did in terms of for for Palace... um, Tottenham do play very open, they're expansive. You know, I think, um, you know, even when they were sort of a couple of goals up against against Fulham, they still were leaving quite big spaces to exploit. So, again, it's whether you've got the attacking armoury there to kind of exploit it. But um, I do think they offer up opportunities. You know, Fulham had some big chances in the game they didn't take. So, it's the million-dollar question whether you've got the quality there to kind of, um, yeah, in those moments kind of make the right decisions, I guess. Well, Aberieza and Michael Elisa, as I'm understanding it, are training outside at the moment. I don't think they're going to be ready. I mean, Ed's going to find out at the presser this week, but I'm not sure that they'll be ready to face Tottenham, which will be, I mean, a big blow because having those two players to call upon would make a big difference to, you know. Neither of them have trained. Neither of them have trained with the first team in the part, first part of this week, Salzy. So I'm going to assume uh, that with the game yeah. being on Friday, it's going to be difficult for either of them to make it. I don't. I don't see it happening, to be honest, like you. So. I think that that will be a big blow. And that's why I think Roy's probably got to be a bit brave here and go with the two younger players. Francis scored last night in the under-21 game over uh, at Sutton against um, Monaco. And, you know, I think, you know, that little cameo on Saturday, he, at Newcastle, he looked very positive, very talented, willing to to take a few... um, players on and, and, and he had one long range effort that wasn't too far away. I think he, he could be a a real find, but I think we need to, to let him loose where possible. And and this game I think might be the one just to take that chance that his ability to change games and go by people from what we've seen so far might be desperately needed because I don't see with the front three that uh, operated at Newcastle, that Palace are likely to cause Tottenham too many problems in that sense. And I think that's been a, a feeling I've had, even the Arsenal game, second game of the season. You know, I, you, you'd feel that if we had everybody at our disposal in a game like that, where they're down to 10 men for half an hour, you could have a real go. But, you know, the issue is always going to be scoring goals. And I think they've only scored more than once in a game just against Wolves, I think, is the only time it's happened this season. And as you said, there have been quite a few blanks now, three out of the last four, and I think uh, the Arsenal game on top. So I think we've, we've had at least four blanks out of nine games. And the, 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 the frustration, I think, for me, is that that was clear to be seen before a ball was kicked. If you didn't do something about it, and I'd argue that Palace haven't done enough about it to to um, to make themselves competitive enough 
you know, in terms of a squad for the rigours of a, a Premier League season. Uh, we're going to jump straight into to questions that you sent in from this week in part three. Uh, I appreciate we didn't give you as much time to send in everything that you maybe could have wanted to, but we're still learning the ropes by hopefully episode five will be a, a well-oiled machine. But the first question uh, this week, I believe I'm going to direct to you, Rich. Um, Josh asked whether there are any names you can divulge who might be in line for the job at Millwall. Obviously, pretty tricky because... Yeah, it's, it's still early days, um, but uh, throw you under the bus, sorry. It's a tricky one to answer because I think certain names you hear and it depends where you hear them from and it's not necessarily... I think the problem you've got is the people that you hear are linked with it um, that are out there in the public domain, aside from maybe like a Kevin Muscat, which I've already said I think is definitely a, 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 you know, a person of interest to Millwall. It's very, very hard to really kind of go through going this person, that person. Like I said, given a couple... Sells, you mentioned Michael Beale. Again, I think he is one that will be interviewed. But the thing is, is that that first stage, it doesn't mean you get through to the second stage. So I, I kind of feel what, I'd lo- what I'm hoping is that maybe next week I can shed some serious light on, on who's a kind of runner and rider because it's a bit like, I guess, being in The Apprentice. There's a, a room full of people, but like, you know, they're not, a lot of them are going to fall by the wayside. So the honest answer to that is I probably can't say because I've, I kind of feel like it's going to be easier to talk about people that come to the fore as we get a bit further into the process next week. So I, I, I think that's probably all I can really add to it at the moment. I can't really go into it too deeply. I, I, I'm not exactly sure how many people in total Millwall are actually going to speak to, but I do know that they had so many applications come through. And I think it sounds like there's some really, really good ones, you know, experienced managers, coaches that aren't so experienced uh but have got a good background and a good pedigree in coaching so uh yeah that's all i can say on that at the moment can i ask you rich then turn that question ever so slightly that you don't know too much at this point but do you have anyone yourself that you think would be particularly suitable or you would like to see at the helm i don't know i think that's a tricky one again because i think Without knowing, I'll give you an example. I think I said to Ed last week on the podcast, people have talked about Kevin Muscat. I mean, I've never seen Kevin Muscat's team play. So I can't tell you anything about Kevin Muscat apart from the fact he's got an affiliation to Millwall. Um, I I always thought Nathan Jones' sort of Luton team was very high intensity. They played very well at the dead. It went down. Nathan Jones' team went down extremely well with Millwall fans. Because I know people will say football moves on and there is an expectation on a Millwall team that when you come out of the den, you do play in a certain way. It doesn't have to be um, all about aggression, but there does need to be a tempo to the play. And I think I said last week, I think a slow build-up, passing it round at the back and, and kind of trying to pick shapes and openings, I don't necessarily think that would work that well. So Nathan Jones is one I've always wondered about. Um I haven't really seen enough of Michael Beale. You touched on Michael Beale. I've not really seen enough of his QPR team. I know he was obviously very highly regarded as a coach before that. So there's a few people in there that I think kind of make sense. Um, I mean, you know, I've seen Neil Warnock have success, obviously, and so have you at, at Crystal Palace to a degree at times. And I think sometimes there's an impact he would he would be someone you would look at but I don't necessarily think that one would be viable I, I've, I've already said I don't think he's someone the mill will go for so 
I think there's some good ones out there. The, the interesting thing, again, is, you know, who would have spoken about Kieran McKenna too much, as in like a general person on the street, before he ended up at Ipswich and look at the job that he's doing there. So sometimes, obviously, clubs have got far greater access, haven't they, to, to sort of background knowledge on these guys and, and how good they are than, than, than I am. So, yeah, that's what I'd say on that one. What, really. I, what I find interesting, Rich, in between, I'll have to send you some tweezers to get some of those splinters out of your backside. Oh. <laughs> but, but what I do find interesting is you're sort of talking about managers there and playing styles. I think Nathan Jones would actually be a really good choice, as it happens. I think he could be a very good fit. But what I was going to say to you is, it seems now that everybody talks about managers and coaches being, you know, having an identity or a style of play or whatever. For me, I can't get away from the fact that the art of management is to look at the players that you have available and and the personnel that, that you inherit within the club and work out how you're going to get the best out of those players playing a certain way, I think it's all very well to come in and say that you have an idea and you want to, your your team to, to play in a certain way. But if you don't have the personnel for it, you can find yourself out of work before you've even started your, your, your long-term rebuilding. And I think if you're... Pep Guardiola, and you've got all the money in the world, and the pick of the world's best players. You can you can have your philosophy and follow it through, knowing that everything's there for you. But I think if you're inheriting Millwall Football Club, I think you you probably need to look at what's best with the players at, at your disposal and how you're going to get the best tune out of those players between now and and the end of the season. Yeah, I think the other thing I'd say is we all have kept it largely under wraps, I think, what where they're at in the process. I mean, if you look at some of the people just on the betting odds, you know, you've got Mark Kennedy in there, who's just left Lincoln. You've got Lee Bowyer in there. You've got Carl Robinson in there. I mean, none of these people, um, I would suggest, are going to be any way, in any way, shape or form, going to be the next manager. So they have kind of kept things fairly quiet. And I think... Over the years, I've found trying to get hold of people that are linked with jobs, and I'll, I'll, I'll be honest now, I've tried to speak to people that are, um, I think, probably ones that would be expected to have that conversation with Millwall. They haven't responded. And I think, unless you're on the outer side and you're thinking, I need this out there now to maybe try and get a bit of, a bit of backing behind me, I think sometimes it can be quite hard. Um, you know, you see managers that are linked with jobs. I mean, Dean Holden's been linked with a lot of jobs of late. He's obviously very, very keen to get back into management. And so it's no surprise that sometimes names come out. But um, I think people that are live, live contenders, what benefit does it do them? And the other thing is, is that I think if managers are in jobs, obviously clubs have got to be pretty careful because there's a protocol to follow as well. So anyway, that's all I'll say on that. Uh, the next question is from Typical Palace on Twitter. Well, I believe he's direct. Yeah, Laurie Dahl. Uh, I believe he's directing this one at you, Selzy. Uh, and he asked about the, the Dean Henderson, Sam Johnson not being included in the same debate as Aaron Ramsdale and, and David Raya at, at Arsenal. And he also wants to know um, what Sam's new deal might mean for the short-term injury uh, which uh, Dean picked up against Manchester United. Um, I wouldn't read too much into any of that, to be honest. I mean, Dean is recovering from the the injury i think he's been um out on the grass this week not doing anything too strenuous with his 
with his legs, but uh, doing a bit of handling and stuff like that while whilst on the floor at least. Um, you know, Dean. You know, Palace have signed Dean because he's an outstanding player. You know, an outstanding goalkeeper. He's twenty six years old. It's a very good opportunity in the way that the deal could be done and structured that they probably didn't want to pass up. You know, I think, you know, he could be a player that will grow as a real asset to the club. At at the same time, Sam has been remarkably consistent. And, you know, I think probably given the type of deal that Dean's been brought in on, he's come from Manchester United, which means that he won't be on a, a low salary. And perhaps they've decided to improve Sam's terms accordingly, you know, with the fact that he's doing very well at this moment in time. You know, there's talk about, um, you know, removing clauses from his contract, you know, buyout clauses. I know there was a story in, I think, the Sun or the Mirror at some point during the summer where they were referring to a a buyout clause. But um, from my conversation with Sam, I think, the buyout clause is only in the event of relegation. I don't think it's a general buyout clause, as people have assumed um, in that sense anyway. So I'm not privy to all that information, but I do know that it's not quite that simple. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, we had a very strong competition in the goalkeeping department last year to a degree. At one point, you had Vicente Guaita, Sam playing second fiddle and Jack Butland also there. So you had, you know, a really, really strong department then. And I think, you know, from from what I understand is that Steve Parrish is, you know, not wanting to take a risk by signing a second-rate goalkeeper that if we ended up with, a, with an injury, might cost Crystal Palace their Premier League future. So... I think it makes sense on a, on 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 a on a, you know, if you look at it, if if you look at it overall, you can understand the reasonings and why it's been done. The fans will all argue, oh, we could have spent the money on this and could have done that and so on. But if Dean Henderson, you know, ends up and proves to be a very good signing for Crystal Palace, obviously, all that will will change, you know, but. Dean Henderson will have his work cut out for the time being in any case because Sam Johnson is playing so well, you know, he's not going to to give up the number one jersey too easily anytime soon. But as we know, football changes quickly, players get injured, opportunities arise, and Sam's situation is is actually last season very much the same as Dean's maybe this season, you know, that mm. he waited for his chance, he didn't get a chance, and when Sam came and he, and he'll tell you this, I openly said to him you're not going to get into the team on on a, on a the basis that Vicente Guaita will be dropped because he hasn't ever shown a level of inconsistency that would prompt you to think that his spot in the team would be in danger. But he has picked up a few muscle injuries here and there over the season. I think Jack played something like between 10 or 15 games, Jack Butland, the previous season. Um, 
and Sam eventually did get his chance and he's grasped it. And I think, you know, what, what may end up happening with him and Dean is that whoever is in control is going to play and there may not be a changing of the guard too often unless there is uh, an injury that, that allows the other to um, stake a claim. But, you know, as far as Crystal Palace are concerned, you know, two outstanding goalkeepers at their disposal. You know, Sam's forced himself back into the England picture and, you know, there are other keepers like Nick Pope around on the scene as well. I don't know what will happen with Aaron Ramsdale in the longer term because if he is unable to find a way back past David Raya for the time being into the team at Arsenal, his England spot may come come into some kind of jeopardy as well, I would imagine. Mm. So, you know, things change very quickly in football, I think, and and people should always, you know, be wary of that. And also this idea that you don't need two very good goalkeepers is outdated. You know, if, if one of them falls down the stairs one morning, you know, you need to be in a situation where you're not panicked and having kittens about who you're putting in goal the, 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 the coming weekend or whatever as a result. So you've just got to be prepared and set up for all eventualities, really. We're, we're going to bring the, the questions part of the, the podcast to an end there. But when we come back for part four, I believe, where we'll be uh, blitzing through AFC Wimbledon and Charleston in the final segment. Uh, welcome back to part four of the South London Press Football Pods. We're now going to talk about Charleston Athletic. Uh, a good win on the weekend against Reading, a convincing win. But heading up to Michael Appleton's old team, Lincoln, Rich, it all fell apart and the uh, the win, the unbeaten run under the new boss has come to an end. Yeah, it's um, it's one of those where the, the kind of home form has been very, very good this season, the away form not so much. Uh, I think now, um, I think I'm correct in saying winless in six on the road, drawn three, lost three. Last three points they got were at uh, Milton Keynes in April. So, um, They've not, you know, the home form, I think I tweeted about it at the weekend, it's been really, really good. They've scored a lot of goals at home as well. And uh, certainly second half against Reading, which I think the scoreline at the weekend was a bit deceptive. Um, Reading were very much in the game. Um, and then all of a sudden it just sort of ran away from them a little bit of maybe inexperience with some of their players, but also the, the kind of hardships they faced. I wonder if they're so robust to sort of, absorb some of the setbacks and, and sort of Charlton quite emphatically put the hammer down on them with fantastic goal, particularly by Tyrese Campbell. But the I've only seen the highlights of midweek. I was at Millwall last night. Um, Louis Mendes's report for the paper on Friday talked about the fact that the sort of defensive mistakes and vulnerabilities came to the fore again. Um, and um, I mean, particularly watching the third goal, it's it's not great that they concede. They, they do obviously get the lead through um, through Alfie May, who's been a very good signing for them, uh, but it sort of went wrong. And there's been some questions about whether they've got enough leadership in the group uh, when the going gets tough and, and when they have to come back, in, you know, in terms of adversity. They have come from behind under Michael Appleton, at least on a couple of occasions off the top of my head, but certainly the other night they didn't. Interesting, they got a couple of the guys that are um, uh, right up there on assists in League One, Corey Blackett-Taylor, top of the assist charts. He's got five this season and Tyrese Campbell's got four. I really like Tyrese Campbell. I think he looks a, a, a very, very decent prospect. And um, 
you know, the question is whether they need a bit more experience and steel in there um, to kind of to kind of guide them through. But interesting game of the weekend, Bolton at home. You know, the, I mean, Michael Appleton hasn't had a particularly easy start in terms of the schedule, in terms of the opposition on paper. And obviously Bolton are, are right up there, sort of fourth in the table, a couple of points off of the, the top two. So that's going to be a, a pretty testing. Uh, it would be an interesting one to see their home credentials go under the under the microscope a little bit, you know, because they have they have been by and large fairly strong at home. Obviously, Michael Appleton was asked in his pre-match presser about the the hamstring injury that that Chuksunike suffered against Reading. He obviously said that he was going for a scan. I think it was yesterday, wasn't it? That no, no news has come out from that so far. How big of a miss is he going to be if he is out for a sustained period? Yeah, I think so, something I heard today suggested that Chooks is going to be out for a while with it. So um, this is familiar territory, unfortunately. Um, it's going to be a bit of a problem because, uh, you know, you've got Miles Lieburn and, and Chooks who rotate quite nicely. Uh, Chooks just doesn't, you know, historically hasn't played 90 minutes. He'll play 60 and then maybe come off the bench. Um, and so him being out of the equation then puts more onus on Miles Lieburn. You've got Boban Tedic, who's on loan for Man City, but Appleton's played him wide right. I didn't think it really worked at the weekend. He brought on Tyrus Campbell at half time for him. He, he played on the, he, they played a 4-2-3-1 and Tedic played on the right, but he is a striker, I think, in, in terms of like his upbringing at Man City. So Tedic probably then has to be an option through the middle if you want to target man. Alfie May's played a bit more as a 10. So um, I, it's not great news on Chooks because I think when he's fit, he's proven that he will impact games. And it's probably no coincidence that Charlton's form has picked up a bit while he's been available as well. So um, that's not great news, as I say. Nothing official from Michael Appleton. He tends to do his, his media sort of on a Friday quite often, Friday morning. Uh, but sort of indications I've heard is that it's not going to be like a, a particularly short one for Church. So, yeah, that's a definite setback for them. While we have you on, Selzy, I think the Charlton fans might be interested to know your opinions on the goalkeeping department uh, at the Valley. Obviously, Ashley Maynard Brewer is starting at the moment, but Harry Eister did have the number one shirt for a while before he had picked up that serious injury. How do you assess it from your point of view? Well, Ashley Maynard Brewer really seemed to. I'd seen him as a young player playing in, in, in the youth team at Charlton and he really seemed to kick on last season soon after um, uh, Dean took over and, and, and I think probably his his um, his stock rose after the Man United League Cup game where I think he did particularly well at Old Trafford. Um, and I think I think he... You know, Dean Holden clearly had a a lot of trust in him at that point, and that that often sort of propels you forward as a young goalkeeper. But again, it comes back to what I said to you earlier about that magical sort of number of two hundred games. That once you've played that that number of games, you've got enough experience. If you think about the way that 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 goalkeepers mature. And you think about the physicality and stuff in, in that sense. You you can't probably, you know, as as a as a human, you're probably at your peak when you're younger in terms of of your speed and power and all those kind of things. So why do goalkeepers get better often as they get older? 
it must only be that they see the pictures quicker and read the situations that much quicker and they handle the situations that much better because they've been over the ground so many times. So experience is, is key. But I quite like the look of Maynard Brewer. I think there's a bit there and uh, and a chance for him to to sort of push on. Uh, likewise, I quite like Harry Eisted that they... I don't know if it's... Is it Isted or Eisted, Rich? What's the... I think it's Eisted. I think Eisted. it's Eisted, yeah. Right, okay. So, in the, in the summer, you know, he did really, really well on his, um, his spell at, at Barnsley last year after he left Luton. He moved around a bit. I remember him being a young goalkeeper at, at Southampton. Um, he's somebody, I think, that's, you know, shown some promise as well. So, I think, you know, they've... Got two very decent goalkeepers for League One, and um, I think this weekend they'll be coming up against uh, Bolton and Nathan Baxter, who doesn't live too far from the valley. Well, wasn't was brought up not too far from the valley, so um, have another South London goalkeeper on the on the field when you're there on Saturday, Rich, and um, you know again they're they they're. they're I think a, a, a kid that could still push on, you know, in a in a similar way to to Harry Eisted, you know, been at Chelsea as a lad and, you know, at various loans and now sort of forging a bit of a reputation at uh, at Bolton. So uh, be interesting to keep an eye on the goalkeepers at the Valley this weekend. Yeah, I was just going to ask, so is there any goalkeeper you think really stands out in League One, Selzy? Just, it doesn't have to be, obviously... Uh, club that we got a connection with. I'm just curious. Just an extra question to throw in there. The the goalkeeper that I think is standout in League One right now would be someone that is familiar to Charlton fans because he, he was their goalkeeper not so long ago before they sold him to Brighton, and that's James Beadle who's on loan at Oxford, and you know again someone else who's who's really sort of pushing on, and he's got some very, very good characteristic size and shape and temperament. I think he could go quite a long way in the game, James Beadle. I think that I think the four hundred grand or so that Charlton got for him not so long ago is gonna look in the future like a snip, to be honest, because I'd see him, you know, becoming a in in the next few years a a regular Premier League goalkeeper. So um They've certainly had their share there with with uh, with Beadle and Nick Pope and people like that that they found. I know when Pauli was in charge and Nick Pope came in to Charlton, Chris said to me that um, he said I've signed this goalkeeper from from Berry Town and he's got the most unbelievable hands I've ever seen on a goalkeeper and I think he's going to play for England. And that wasn't a bad call from. Uh, from non-league and tonight he's playing the Champions League and, and uh, you know, they've certainly had a, a fair share of very decent goalkeepers there in the last 20 years or so. When he says unbelievable hands, what does that mean? Massive hands or as no, in... No, as like... in means the way he handles the ball, you know, in the, the... And if you've ever watched any of his England stuff on the on the FA's um, 
YouTube and stuff like that, you could see how outstanding his handling is. Might be something to do with his gloves, but obviously I, I don't want to... He does his... He makes his gloves. I, I don't know. Somebody who, who obviously knows what they're doing somewhere in South London anyway. So, I think you've been particularly impressed as well with the number of players that Charlton's Academy produced over the years and the sort of constant turnout of players that they put into the first team as well. Well, you have to be, don't you? I mean, and again, I guess it comes back to necessity is the mother of invention isn't it and at Palace in the time that I was working there I think when I was working with Gary in the 10 seasons we did the under 18 team together we had 33 players playing Crystal Palace's first team which was some going but obviously Premier League status makes that a completely different kettle of fish because you go from putting raw kids in the team from the locality to those players having to be one of the best 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, whatever it may be, uh, best players in Europe in their position, which is, uh, you know, a completely different ball game, really, in that respect. But Steve Avery and the guys there, uh, Reese Williams, the, the, the people inside the academy at, the, uh, at Sparrows Lane have done you know, a fantastic job in keep producing player after player after player. And, you know, full credit to them because, you know, it's the lifeblood when you're in League One or the Championship. And, you know, the likes of Miles Lieber and I know Carl and uh, and his mum Tracy quite well. And, you know, that he's done fantastically well having been at Chelsea as a kid and going back into the academy there. Um, and as Rich was uh, was um, talking about Tyrese Campbell earlier as well, saying, you know, what an exciting prospect there. They, they do certainly unearth some gems. And, you know, that's full credit to all those guys in the background. You don't often hear their names and they're, they're probably not given the, 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 the love or adulation that these people deserve. But, you know, this is a, a, a big job finding players and developing players and 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 making it possible and and you know as as a parent i think as a you know when you're talking about your your kid in an academy setup there are are pros and cons I, this afternoon i've come back from a meeting with um, james trafford the goalkeeper at burnley who who, who went for 20 million pounds in the summer um and I asked him the same question. You know, if you had your time again, would you go to Manchester City? Or, you know, because there isn't really a pathway at a club like that to get into the team too easily. And, you know, he, there are the, the, the in all these situations, as a parent with a, with a kid that might have some potential that these clubs would like to, to bring into their academy, you have to weigh up. Okay, Palace have spent 17, 18 million on the new facility in Beckenham, and it's absolutely fantastic. You know, from the 10 years that I was involved with the under 18 team and now seeing that facility and what goes on, it's pretty incredible. You know, Charlton haven't had the fortune to spend that kind of money in, in the short term, but there is an opportunity and a much quicker path into first-team football at the Valley than there probably is at, at Sellers Park, you know, and 
that's sort of borne out by the fact that Jez has gone there last year and won the player of the season and been an outstanding prospect where obviously it's hard to for Jez to burst into Crystal Palace's team with the the money at their disposal and the and the talent pool. So, you know, there's a lot to be said, you know, for if you were a parent in South London saying Charlton is a great place to, to go right now. And just as Palace was probably in the time that I was there because there was such a, a short route into the first team each time. And and that, you know, A, has to be considered. But as I said, you know, Steve Avery and co, they've done pretty, pretty well there over a long period. Yeah, there's been some phenomenal players come through there. I mean, you're looking at Joe Gomez. I mean, he was absolutely a stellar player when you know, they were in the championship and didn't stay long, but they did get to see him play at first-team level. I think another player you mentioned probably that wasn't from South London, but was from London, Esri Konza, you know, playing so well for Aston Villa now and, and people talking about him as a contender, really, that he could be on the, the cusp of England as well. So, yeah, they've done a tremendous job over there and, you know, decent area to, to go into and look for young players in, in London. But, yeah, absolutely, I just think you can't speak highly enough of the job they've done there, really, with the academy. It's twofold, Rich, really, because, you know, it breaks your heart if you're a Charlton fan in some ways that, you know, you lose these players and you think what you what you could have if you could hold on to them long enough. But when you're not in the Premier League, the money is absolutely huge in terms of keeping the club turning and the wheels turning in that time. And you don't want to develop players with the idea of just selling them all the time, but it probably becomes a necessity over time because it's very difficult to hold on to a, a super talent when you're in League One and there's an agent in their ear telling them that they can earn this here and this is where they should go for the for the next step in their career. You saw that with with Burstow that went to Chelsea, for example. But, you know, was that the biggest benefit to the player, I don't know. You know, time yeah. will tell, of course, but, you know, Charlton probably needed the cash also from the from the deal. So, it's it's difficult, but you know, like I say, it's uh, it's been a pretty great conveyor belt there of talent that has uh, has gone along. We're just going to touch on AFC Wimbledon briefly for the final part of the pod, so join us back in a second. Okay, Ed, so let's uh, turn our focus to AFC Wimbledon. Obviously, a team that started the season so brightly, but down in 13th now in the form guide. They are winless in the last four, uh, losing two of those uh, most recently, of course, in midweek. A game you were at against Accrington Stanley. I guess the question is, is there a danger that the wheels are coming off now for them? What, how, do you, how do you respond to that? Uh, I think... I think you're probably right in saying that the wheels have come off a little bit. I think the early season momentum that they had, the the structure that they put in place over the summer, getting most of their signings done before the start of the season, um, really helped them hit the ground running, really helped in their advantage over other teams. But now that other teams have got their acts together uh, and they're coming off against the Wimbledon team, who might have been found out a little bit with the way they play. I mean, James Tilly hasn't scored for a while. Um, Ali Alhamadi, when he hasn't got Omar Bigel alongside him, looks quite nullified. Um, when they're coming up against those teams who know how they play, they they look lost for ideas sometimes. And so on Tuesday night, they were found out a little bit against a strong Accrington side who started the game superbly, absolutely blew Wimbledon away in terms of what they brought to Plough Lane. 
it took the lead after five minutes and then Tommy Lee scores a, an absolutely spectacular goal from the half volley from 25 yards out and, and the game's killed off after nine minutes and uh, it's an uphill battle from then. So they need to find a way of, of getting wins. They also need to find a way of getting wins without Ali Alhamadou because with the way things are going, with him going off to the Asia Cup in January as well, it's uh, it's looking like their early season playoff potential might not reach the, the full maximum that it could do. I guess as well, there's the chance, there's the, the sort of speculation about Ali Alhamdi doesn't really go away either, does he? That, that, that perhaps his kind of exploits for, for Wimbledon might potentially lead to uh, interest in the January window. Yeah, yeah, 100%. I was having conversations today about about him and of hearing a few things about championship clubs, watching him in particular ahead of the January window. Um, saw today Sunderland being linked. There's another one which will touch on hopefully in next week's SLP but there's there's definitely interest there and and why shouldn't there be he's been absolutely excellent since since arriving at Wimbledon um getting him on a free from Wickham with a 25% sell on has to be one of the best pieces of business that they've done i think the the thing that Wimbledon would be looking for as well with him is is to beat the 1.2 million that the club record in the Phoenix era era that they received for Ibisal um it would be massive for the football club in terms of paying off the debts for Plough Lane and, and reinvesting that money into the squad if they do get that money. But you're looking at it from last season where they're on the cusp of the playoffs. They have a really strong squad. Then they sell their best player and get all their loanies taken away from them and, and they win two games in the second half of the season. I think the the worst thing possible would be losing Ali Alhamadi and then having a repeat of the campaign and and wasting a lot of the potential that there is in the squad. They made some really, really good signings over the summer. Joe Lewis and Ryan Johnson have been excellent bar Tuesday night. Jack Curry and Isaac Ungandera are, are really promising attacking fullbacks. And they're not quite getting the best out of everyone at the moment. So the, the worry would be if you do let Ali go that you're going to waste what you've potentially got at your disposal. Do you think with, with, with Johnny Jackson, obviously the fans began to show their frustration and impatience at the, you know, as the season went on last time round. They then start the season better. Um, do you think that the pressure will come back on to, to Johnny if he can't sort of get an upturn in form fairly swiftly? Or do you think that that he's, he's, he's bought himself some time in terms of trying to show what he can do at Wimbledon? It's a strange one. Last night there were boos at half-time. Um, I think that was more direct to the, the performance of some of the players. He brought in Harry Powell and, and Connor, uh, Connor Evans, who perhaps maybe didn't take their chance. Um, I don't think it was directed towards Jackson and his coaching staff because towards the end of the game, they did fight back and the fans were singing, we've got super Johnny Jackson. It, I think he had around five games at the start of this campaign to to buy himself some time heading into this season after what happened towards the end of last campaign. They obviously got rid of lots of players with Will Nightingale leaving, um, Alex Woodyard as well, a club captain. So they brought in a whole new raft of 10, 11 players and, and rebuilt the squad. So he had to get them settled. He did that. They hit the ground running. But in recent weeks, it hasn't quite looked the same. Um, as I mentioned, James Tilley's been, been nullified in recent outings. The, the shrewdest piece of business I think they did was signing Omar Bagel on a free transfer from Sutton. He really unlocks Alhamadi's sort of attacking flair, allows him to drift into different positions. So not every single League Two defender can track him. Um, and he's got a really experienced head on him. It's just on Tuesday night, things didn't quite click. And uh, Jackson as well, I think the home form has, has been has been pretty shocking. If you look at it from 
the home form and away form point of view, Wimbledon are in the bottom three in their home form. Only Harrogate and uh, Forest Green have a worse home form in the league. But away from home, they've picked up 16 points, which is the most in the division. So if they want to be sort of seen as real playoff contenders in the fourth division, they need to find a way of picking up points at home because they can't rely on just picking up points away from Plough Lane. Yeah, something you sort of touched on in your match report, which people can read in, uh, in Friday's paper. So, um, yeah. Selsey, what do you make of... Obviously, Ryan Sanford went to Wimbledon, didn't he, uh, on a sort of short-term deal. Uh, what Are you a little bit... I don't know, he's, he was a player that was at Millwall for a long, long time. And I don't know, maybe to his detriment in the end, because he's now at an age where he probably should have played at least a few more matches, shouldn't he, at this stage? Yeah, I would have thought so. Somebody... He actually went to my daughter's school and was in the same class as my daughter. So I was aware of him from, you know, when his early days playing with England and stuff at sort of under-16 level. But again, it's about pathways and opportunity and he probably hasn't had that in the games. But Ashley Bates, who's working there, is someone I have a lot of respect for and has done really, really well with goalkeepers, particularly producing young ones that have gone on and, and and been sold on for very good money. You know, there's, you know, Spike Britt's the most recent, but Joe Bursick, Will Mannion, you know, Joe Whitworth at Palace, who I, who I know very well. You know, Wimbledon is a, you know, I'm listening to you both talking there and, you know, part of the difficulty with being a League Two manager also is that, you do almost have to reinvent and restart the, the squad building every summer because of the loans and you inevitably lose people and all that kind of stuff. It's quite a, a big job. And I, I don't follow the Wimbledon thing so closely, but it seems that I don't know if it's if it's to do with with experience in the playing squad or leadership within the within the playing group, but they seem, I mean, particularly last season, I don't know, that, that they seem to have real stretches of winning form and losing form almost, where they, they once think their tails are up and things are going well, they're, 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 they're racking up real, you know, a good number of consecutively positive results. And likewise, when the chips are down a little bit, they seem to be in a rut and don't seem to be able to get themselves out of it. So I don't know I don't know too much about the personnel there, Ed, and what they've got, but just from a distance where I'm looking, that seems to be sort of a bit of an issue for them. Yeah, they've been very streaky. Um been streaky really since they've moved back to Plough Lane. Under Mark Robinson they went on a terrible run. Since Johnny Jackson's come in, it's been it's been a bit like a roller coaster. It's up, down, up, down. And when it's down, it's really down. Um he needs to find a way of sort of arresting that and making sure that they can form a steady line and, and build up towards that, that that top seven. But they have a really good squad, Selzy. Like for that division, I think it's 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 top three, four, five squads in terms of the, the options he has. It's just about getting everyone to click and everyone to to sing off the sing same hymn sheet. It's just um, it was happening at the start of the season, but it hasn't quite happened for the past few it weeks was, for him. It, it was interesting to me what you said about the the striker from Sutton um, and and the effect he's had on the other players because I'd, I'd sort of sense the same thing at Charlton with Alfie May, you know, that, again, needs a sort of physical front player really to 
to bring out the best in him because he is a terrific goal scorer at the level and a really good mm. finisher. And, you know, it just shows you that, again, going back to the comment I made earlier about having the balance right in your team, you, you sometimes need certain things that aren't always appreciated by everybody that that give you that balance to allow your better players to to flourish as you're talking about there really but it, it it's the you by bringing in that uh, that sort of combination those combinations you know that that they really need each other to 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 um to complement and 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 produce you know results for the team and there's a lot you know certainly where strikers are concerned you know big centre forwards often do a lot of a lot of work that is you know isn't always appreciated and and I think you know even we see at Premier League level with Palace you know if you're going to play centre forward for Palace for example it's not just about scoring goals it's about what you can do for the team and what you can bring to the team and and these, these, uh, this sort of theme runs through from what you're talking about with Wimbledon, and certainly the bits of Charlton that I've seen, I've kind of detected it there as well. That that that, and I know when I ran into Dean Holden sort of earlier in the season, that and uh, Jim Rodwell, that they were quite keen to get a physical forward to to complement Alfie Mate in in order to get the best out of him and. You know, I thought that was a brilliant bit of business getting Alfie May and now it looks like it's kind of working and he's hitting the net regularly. We're going to bring to an end episode two of the South London Press Football Pod. We hope you enjoyed it. Selzy, thank you very much for joining us this evening. Well, now it's the early morning of Friday, no, of, uh, Thursday. But... Apologies for keeping you so late, but uh, a quick trip to Manchester and back this afternoon that had to be done on the train. So, um, yeah, I enjoyed it. I've managed to, to talk about Wimbledon, Charlton and Millwall, which they probably wouldn't have expected from someone <laughs> of a Crystal Palace persuasion. But uh, You're very bounced. You've always very bounced. So I, well, I, 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 I expected nothing less. Well, when you work in the football business, that although, you know, Palace is my club and, you know, you have that allegiance and stuff like that, you you know all the other people in all the other places and, that sort of partisan element doesn't really exist so much. And you have a lot of respect for a lot of people that are, you know, in the business as we're talking about and, and the things that they do. And, uh, you know, you, you know, it's really right and, and correct to, to be able to see things in the, in the right way. I'm sure you'll be back on in the not too distant future. So thank you again, Sazi, for joining us, well, Rich as well. Thank you as always. You're, you're probably, uh, You'll probably get a request from me again from a few insomniacs or something on your Twitter, <laughs> but that's probably about it. Uh, Rich, as always, thank you very much for joining us again. No, cheers for cheers for hosting Edmund. You're just getting stronger and stronger with these. Yeah, yeah. A, a career stronger. In the weights. Yeah, <laughs> will be uh, will be on Sky Sports News before we know it. Uh, they couldn't they couldn't tear me away from the SLP. So yeah, I'm here for the long haul. Anyway. Thank you very much. We'll wrap it up there and uh, we'll speak soon.